0: Thank you so much for finding the time to stop by. I know you're probably having a very busy conference. I'm happy
1: to always talk about legal aid and the advocaturas.
0: I know personally I have no legal background, so.
1: Most people don't. And always there's the question of Russian law. Is there any?
2: Welcome listeners to another episode of the Slavic Connection here at AC's 2022. We had a very exciting guest this morning, Will Pomerantz, with the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. Lara, what what were your thoughts?
0: I mean, if you ever had any questions about Russian law and even just whether or not it exists in Russia today, this is the episode to listen to. We cannot
2: recommend it enough. We hope you enjoy. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. All right, listeners. Well, we have Will Pomerantz. He's the director of the Wilson Center, uh, Wilson Center's Kennan Institute. He he wrote a book back in 2018 titled The Law in the Russian State, Russia's Legal Evolution from Peter the Great to Vladimir Putin, which is a which is a long time. It seems like there's a lot of evolution going on there.
1: Evolution and regression.
2: Okay. All right. Well, we will get into those details in a, in, a, in a bit. But I guess starting off, just we want to hear your story. What got you into studying the Russian legal system? What, what was your trajectory to that? And, and just any interesting stories you can tell?
1: Well, when I began my PhD, I decided I was going to do a dissertation on viechi, or landmarks, which is a collection of essays in 1909, kind of by the intelligentsia, really be, talking about how they were disillusioned by the 1905 revolution. So I read Vechy about two or three times, yet again, and I decided that I really didn't want to do a dissertation on Vechy. But there was an essay in that collection by a Ukrainian legal scholar named Bogdan Kistiakovsky, And he wrote about the state of Russian legal consciousness. And he wrote his article called In Defense of Law. And it was really an outlier in this whole collection of essays, because whereas everyone was always complaining about the failure of the Russian people, you know, disillusion, the need for more, you know, spiritual guidance as opposed to actual political advice, Kistikovsky wrote extensively about the nature of Russian law. And I just was really attracted to that essay. And so I decided that I wanted to do a dissertation on Russian law. And after a year's Floundering, I decided that it was going to be the Russian legal profession, the advocatura, and that would be the vehicle to explain the evolution of Russian law in pre-revolutionary Russia. So the other thing that I did after graduate school and after my first job, I went to law school at night and I became actually a lawyer. And I'll, I'll say the joke that my wife always says, I actually became my dissertation topic. <laughs> It, it, it always gets laughs. And I decided out of law school, I got my first job practicing law in Moscow. So I, this, this was an amazing opportunity. Obviously, it couldn't happen today for a whole host of reasons. But my first job was dealing, was dealing with commercial and legal transactions in Russia. So my law firm uh, gave me a copy of the Russian Civil Code. They gave me a copy of the joint stock company law. And having never practiced American law, I began practicing Russian law, which was, in retrospect, a bit of a, of, of, you, you could say it was malpractice, but uh, <laughs> nevertheless, I was practicing Russian law and I was reading Russian law. And I was advising clients as to how to register companies and dealing with a host of regulatory issues in Russia. So I added not only a knowledge of pre-revolutionary law, but a knowledge of everyday Russian law as it, as it is practiced today.
2: And what year was that, that you graduated and started practicing Russian law?
1: I started practicing Russian law in 1999 and I did it for approximately two years.
2: Okay, during that time period, Russia went through a lot of change. We're probably seeing a lot of the ramifications of that today. What are some misconceptions that you think Americans might have about Russian law, seeing, seeing based on your experiences?
1: I think there are a bunch of, obviously, misconceptions. One was when I was actually practicing law in Russia, I was in a small American law firm, Baker McKenzie. We had 30 lawyers, but basically all of them were Russian lawyers. And I can safely say they were excellent lawyers. And they really knew how to advise Western clients. They all spoke English. They all knew how to interact uh, with the concerns of Western clients. That was a lot of hand-holding back in the 1990s as they tried to wrestle all the kind of bureaucratic limitations of actually being a business in Russia. So one was the, the knowledge of my colleagues and, my, and, and the camaraderie that actually existed. The problem is that all the practitioners in Russia who I met in the law firm had no avenue or opportunity to, for greater public service. And so the knowledge that these group of lawyers have that was first rate and international and excellent was not brought into the Russian state and could never be brought into the Russian state because they had no path, no career path to actually become a part of you know, the government as it were. So that was one thing that I, I, I want to emphasize. The other thing is that we think about legal institutions, and we can identify various institutions in Russia. So we can identify judges, we can identify prosecutors, we can identify lawyers. And we think that we know exactly who they are and how they've actually become what they practice. In fact, that is absolutely wrong. And if you understand how judges get promoted, if you understand the history of the Russian prosecutor's office, which has always been perceived as the eye, the eye of the state, if you understand how isolated the legal profession, the Bar Association, is from all these other legal activities and institutions, then you realize that whatever advice you're giving in terms of how one promotes the rule of law in Russia, and we can get into that, what that means. But how you do that requires that you understand the trajectories of all these different institutions and their limitations. And so that when you try to talk about you know, what could be done, obviously, we're, we're, we're not at that stage yet. I don't recommend going back to the 1990s and, and taking out the playbook and, and doing what we did in the 1990s. That would be irresponsible. But if we are given a chance to interact with Russia again, to the extent that we can advise about possible reforms of their legal system. We need to understand, you know, the profile of all these different lawyers and how they interact with the state and their clients.
0: I wanna kind of take it back to, to you and your timeline. So yeah, you're practicing law in Moscow in the late 90s. What happened between there? What led up to now your um, position as director at the Woodrow Wilson Center's Kennan Institute?
1: Oh, it's been a long road. (laughs) And I'm an example of finding, uh, landing in the right place, but not really knowing how I was getting
0: there. That's the trick.
1: (laughs) So again, when I finished, I'll go back to my dissertation. I did my PhD at the University of London. I came back to the United States. I didn't have a job. I applied for academic jobs, close but no cigar. And then I got a job at the National Endowment for Democracy. And so I, I spread democracy in Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus for seven years. And that was a great front row seat on what was happening in all those countries. And that was really an education in and of itself to see how things were changing. So I then went to practice law in Moscow I returned to practice law in the United States, and I can safely say that practicing law in the United States was not as rewarding. It was more remunerative, but it wasn't as rewarding in trying to understand a different legal system and a different legal culture. So I began practicing various types of administrative law in the United States. I dealt with export controls, customs, et cetera, et cetera. I won't go into all the details, but as a practicing lawyer, you have to bill a client every six minutes. And so you are always on the clock. And I found that living your life in six minute intervals is not really the way to go. And so I had continued to publish articles from my dissertation. I I published a bunch of articles on the Russian constitutional court. And so when the opportunity came to go back to the Woodrow Wilson Center and the Kennedy Institute, as deputy director, I, I applied. I fortunately was accepted, and did that for more than a decade, and now have become the director of the Kennedy Institute in July.
0: I actually wanted to take this opportunity to talk a little bit about the center, because for some people, they might not even be familiar with what the Wilson Center does, what the Kennan Institute does. Uh, So could you kind of take a moment to sort of promote what you all have been doing over there?
1: Well, we are a public policy think tank, as it were, and we promote knowledge and understanding in Russia, Ukraine, and the post-Soviet space. That is obviously a challenge, and it's a challenge. It was a challenge at the beginning when the Soviet Union collapsed, and it's a challenge today. But that is our goal. And what makes us different from other think tanks in D.C. is that we emphasize scholarly activities and scholars. And so we have a host of alumni in Russia, Ukraine, and in other countries. And we were able to establish really great relationships with Russian scholars, Ukrainian scholars, etc. That has changed dramatically, and it is changing I changed even yesterday when the Woodrow Wilson Center was declared an undesirable organization. And that's that's what I woke up. That's what I woke up to yesterday. Now we have basically we we don't have any employees at, uh, in the Russian Federation. We can't send money to scholars that we used to do in the Russian Federation. So our ability to interact with Russian scholars has clearly diminished over the last year and a half. We have been focusing on. Russians in the Diaspora. We received funding that allowed us to create a Russian language blog and with some of the best journalists who are in exile. And we have emphasized the ability to reach a Russian audience that other think tanks can't do. Otherwise, we have a lot of fellowship opportunities to come to Washington. These are for scholars, for graduate students, they, are, they, they run the gamut from six-month scholarships to three-month scholarships. And so we host a lot of scholars. And the other thing that we do is we conduct meetings on both historical and topical issues. So it's just a great resource. And you can visit our webpage to find out. But it's just a great resource, not only for scholars and historians, but for people who want to follow what's going on today.
2: I have a question going back to the point that you just made more broadly as not only the Wilson Center and, and the Kennedy Institute, but some of these other think tanks and, and even academia in, in America having historical relations with scholars in Russia. And it seems like those relationships are slowly just getting cut off. What do you think that that will do for the relationships for academia and trying to understand the United States and, and Russia like on the, on the same level? Like,
1: I'll give you a short answer. The relationship is is... Is under heavy strain, and I don't have a vision as to what changes it, other than radical political change in Russia. So I think that for U.S. based scholars, they will not have the opportunity, like I had, to just kind of wander around Moscow and, and meet, you know, different Russian political figures. They won't have the opportunity to go to archives. We're always trying to we're trying to figure out how we help. PhD students and, and other people who are interested in Russia, when in fact, the possibilities of going to Russia are just very, very limited. So I think that's the challenge that we have today, to still bring Russia into a conversation, but also take into account what they have done. And it can't be business as usual. And we're not going back into the 1990s. There have been very dramatic changes. You know, it's, Russia's been Removed from the Council of Europe and the European Court of Human Rights, the swift economic messaging system, I I can go on. So, if we want to reintegrate Russia, it will take a change of mindset in Russia. And I don't think that the West will be as willing to accept Russia into Western institutions that they were at the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, the Russians would say that it wasn't necessarily a warm welcome. And that's right. And there were other things that we could have done to facilitate the relationship at the time of the collapse that could have helped, you know, reassure Russians that they were going to be part of, you know, Western institutions. I like to think that in light of the sanctions and a thousand companies leaving Russia and the economic relations that have been destroyed because of sanctions, that the attempt to integrate Russia actually did, did have some results. But... Going back and trying to rebuild them will be a long-term process.
2: I'd like to maybe get a, a little bit more into this. We had Vladimir Karamazov on our podcast one time uh, about two weeks before the war started and very shortly before his arrest. And one of the things he, he highlighted was just... In order for Russia to change, just the massive corruption and the the stealing from the Russian people, the institutions and, and these things are, are going to have to be drastically reformed in order to work for the Russian people. And it, I would like to say that it, between and Navalny, and all of these other people that are actually um, victims of the judicial system, what segment of the Russian population is it these people that we look to to try and reform the system, like, or is it going to take all Russians to, to make those changes?
1: I think it will take all Russians to make these changes. I think that both of those men will try to be politicians in a different Russia whenever that occurs. Whether they have a political path is, uh, going forward is, is unknown. But I do agree with uh, others, other commentators that there just has to be a rebuilding and a rethinking of institutions, and I've written a lot on the Russian constitution, the constitutional reforms of 2020, etc. But I always go back to the provision that describes the separation of powers. And it says, Russian state power will be divided into three branches, the judiciary, the executive, and the legislature, and that these institutions will be autonomous. Everyone focused on the second part of the sentence. The first part of the sentence was the most important: state power, and they always go back to state power and the state. And I told Chubais on the 30th anniversary of the collapse of the Soviet Union, did an interview, and he said, um, "We had you know all these grand plans of change, etc., etc., but we woke up and we found out that we didn't have a state, and we had to rebuild the Russian state." Putin carried that to a, du- a different extreme, but this whole notion of the state and state power. Uh, has to change in order to somehow have a devolution of power in Russia that could potentially change the dynamics going forward.
0: I also kind of have a broad question just in terms of the idea of Russia's constitution, its rule of law, and the fact that, you know, we're lucky enough to have someone that's watched this progress since the 90s. It's been over 20 years of many drastic changes to Russia's constitution and seeing those direct effects from possible hopeful democracy to this authoritarian regime where we see trials that are effectively just shows. What has been your thoughts of like watching this development and in that same sort of vein of like looking at the future like what needs to change there because we need all Russians but it's also just we need a deep fundamental change.
1: Yes and So I was giving a paper today, uh, or yesterday, or whenever it was I arrived, I was giving a paper on the history of Russian legal aid and how Russians gain access to legal aid. And this was a large part of my dissertation. I found out a lot of things about the delivery of law in Tsarist times that obviously I, I didn't realize at all. But the question always is, the state has always been very suspicious of the provision of legal aid writ large, and at various points in Russian history, they've gone after institutions, consultation bureaus, other types of independent organizations that are trying to give advice to Russians. And they've never reconciled themselves, quite frankly, to the power of local law and challenges to the state that can come not from the great political trials, but from problems with your apartment or problems with um, divorce, all all the other side issues that, that Russians do have problems with and seek legal advice for. So the question is whether this kind of everyday law can challenge the Russian state is, again, a challenge going forward. It's never succeeded in doing so.
2: It almost seems like what you're describing is is these represent like the representatives for legal aid or the lawyers representing people in court present almost a direct threat or a perceived threat to the Russian state or to the state power. And that this, like you were saying earlier, they are completely cut out. They are completely separate from the judicial system as far as like the judicial system is a, is a seat of power and, and maybe a direct line to the Kremlin and, and things like that. But I guess why does the Kremlin perceive these these legal aid institutions or or these lawyers as as threats to its power?
1: It's a variety of reasons. So, what some legal aid deals with political cases. So, obviously, in the major political cases, that is a challenge to the state. I always often say that the in the United States we don't really use such terminology as public law and private law, but those are very important concepts in European civil law and the development of European civil law. And what I think is the ability for private law and everyday law to challenge the powers of public law, the power of the state between, between citizens, it has never been able to regulate that. And so that whereas, you know, property rights is always perceived as a civil right, in the United States and as a challenge to any sort of power of the state. The recognition of pr- property rights has a very long and troubled history in Russia and was never been able to really challenge the power of the Russian state. Now that was changing in Tsarist times, but it hadn't been definitively resolved. So what what really needs to happen is that all this type of legal activity that I describe in in several articles and other scholars have dealt with as well. It has to be able to be on an equal footing with the Russian state, and it has never been so. And until that happens, until somehow the public law power of the Russian state is diminished or at least checked, there won't be any legal reform in Russia.
0: You do have a mention of um, just reading your, the description of the paper that you presented. That there have been actually several initiatives to increase legal aid. What did those look like?
1: They've always been at the initiative of the state. Basically, again, the legal profession has tried to introduce uh, various types of different legal aid systems. It is complicated by the fact that the bar is actually doesn't have a legal monopoly. So there are actually multiple lawyers or juries practicing in Russia. So they don't have this professional monopoly. So it is a very diffuse system, a legal aid. The state has basically come up with a concept paper. That will force all these jurists who are not members of the bar to become a member of the bar. That would basically increase the bar by about a million and a half to two million lawyers. So on one hand, you say, oh, that would be great if the bar could supervise its own profession, you know, provide legal aid, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think the state is interested in a more. Uh, Having millions of yeah, lawyers. Uh, they don't want yeah. more Chasing lawyers. Chasing ambulances and, and other things, practicing law. I think they wanted to, to create a single registry so that they can control lawyers. And it is not an accident that the Ministry of Justice is the one who would basically at least control the, the creation of this new legal profession and would be assigned the register of lawyers in russia the advantage of these regulations was that they would give the, the bar associations a legal monopoly and they have been they have been asking that for 150 years and they've never gotten it so again everyone is suspicious as to why the state now will be willing to give the bar associations, a professional monopoly. So, what does a legal monopoly look like? It means that everyone has to be registered by the a local bar association. It's, it's, you know, in the United States, everyone you know graduates from law school, but it doesn't mean you're a lawyer. You have to take the bar exam. You have to make sure that you know certain practical knowledge, and then you're subject then to a code of ethics, professional responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera. And so, that's on paper what they, in theory, would be happening. But in light of the state's record. In terms of legal evolution and legal autonomy, a lot of Russian lawyers are very suspicious. A lot of human rights lawyers, for example, have never registered with the bar. In fact, they just, I, I, I've dealt with lawyers, they graduated from law school, they had legal credentials, but in order to practice human rights law, to, in order to appeal to the European Court of Human Rights, they didn't have to be a member of a bar association, they could just file a petition, put a stamp on it, and then the the European court would have to deal with it. Now, it would take a long time. It wasn't the most efficient way, but it was a way by which there was a check on the Russian legal system. And lawyers were always very cognizant that the European court represented another jurisdiction that they could appeal to, and that the Russian state would at least have to deal with in terms of decisions. So, the fact now that Russia is no longer a member of the European Court of Human Rights is a great blow in terms of Russia's ability to become more a state that actually deals with human rights. Indeed, I argue that there's you know, been a major retreat and it's pretty obvious from human rights, not only in terms of practicing human rights, but making the state enforce human rights.
0: There's just so much to wrap your head around because it's not just understanding Russian law, but like, you know, we are also in our Western mindsets because that's what we understand. And do you run into that conflict of Western understanding and people are trying to analyze Russian law and it's like, well, you're applying a Western framework to it and that's not fair?
1: Fair or not fair, I think Westerners do apply a Western framework to Russian law. I think that, again, you have to understand the incentives of the Russian legal system, in order to understand what's going on, so that a judge, their career path will be significantly hindered if they have too many acquittals. So everyone's always amazed by the the statistic of, of a 99% conviction rate in criminal law. But basically, you know, if you want to be a judge, and you can become a judge as early as 25, so it's it's not it's not a reward for long service. It's a career path. And in order to stay on that career path, you don't want too many blemishes on your record. And the blemishes are acquittals. And so that, that also has to be taken into account. And if again, if we're ever given a chance to remake the Russian judiciary, how do we get rid of that incentive? And how do we bring in people who are more enlightened, as it were, to want to be a judge? So you know, judges don't get paid very well in, in Russia and it's not a prestige profession, and so practicing advocates are very rarely judges. Indeed, in the czarist period, it was, there was real discrimination between people becoming advocates, advocates becoming judges. And again, in terms of professional development, you know, that's an important step in terms of the prestige of the profession, and it just wasn't there.
2: I'm going to pivot to something completely different. So the war in Ukraine obviously is on the front of everybody's mind right now. And I wanted to hear from you, from somebody that has actually studied the Russian legal system, the the referendums that were held to annex Eastern Ukraine and, and quote unquote, make it a part of Russia and could you explain the legal process or like the legal thought behind what that, what those steps were? And I think people just heard like these referendums are happening and, and didn't really quite understand like what the back end of like actually what went into that. So could you explain a little bit?
1: I think I can. In 2020, when Putin introduced his constitutional changes, he basically kind of foreshadowed what he was going to do in Ukraine and some of the reforms that he introduced. He introduced in the Constitution that the Russian Federation was the legal, legal successor of the Soviet Union. That was not in the previous, the 1993 Yeltsin Constitution. He also emphasized that it was not possible to give away Russian land, that once it was part of the Russian Federation, it would be part of the Russian Federation forever. Now, at the time, I think that was primarily directed towards Crimea and also the Kuro Islands. But the idea was somehow once a part of the Russian Federation, you you were always part of the Russian Federation. So that when Putin decided that he was going to hold these referendums in the various parts of Ukraine, I think it was, at least in his mind, to, to reinforce the idea that they would always be a part of Russia and that there would be no possibility of negotiation once they became a part of Russia. Events have transpired. What was going to be forever didn't last two months.
2: Two days. <laughs> yes. And so,
1: so that has, so Putin now is really on the hook for saying that these, these regions are now going to be a part of the Russian Federation, but he can't defend them. You know, they've just withdrawn from Kherson. So the whole idea that somehow this would be a negotiating tool so that they could never have to return these territories was behind all these referendums and annexations. And Peskov basically said that even though Russians were retreating from Kherson, it's still a part of the Russian Federation. Just so you yeah, know. Yeah, just so you know. But, but, you know, what that means going forward, in, unless Russia wants to retake these regions, they will not be part of the Russian Federation. I should also add that every Russian leader who has added territory has been a success and every Russian leader who has lost territory has been a failure. Gorbachev is simply the most obvious example of that, but there are others as well. So that the idea that Putin was able to gain lands, to gather Novorossiya, or whatever he wants to call it, was perceived as an accomplishment and as a positive aspect of governing and, and Russian state identity. Now he has to deal with a major military defeat. Military defeats, from a historical standpoint, always challenge political reality.
2: And we're, in, I think we're definitely starting to see the cracks in the foundation of what this military defeat means and the weakness of Putin's regime. And we're starting to see the infighting and, and things like that.
0: It, it feels like the cracks are starting to show, but the question is, will that change anything? Does it matter? Or are we just going to keep going?
1: My argument is always that military defeat and economic collapse usually lose to allow for change of leadership, even in Russia, yeah. and that we just don't know to what extent Putin can hold on. Obviously, he's made sure that there are no obvious challenger to his rule. There's yeah. no vice president. There's no obvious successor. But he has received several major blows over the last three months, uh, six months. Mm-hmm. And I don't anticipate that in light of the Russian military's current condition, that things will get better anytime soon.
0: It's so fascinating to look at it from that sort of framework, because you can like throw around like that's illegal, that's not illegal. But we even had discussions at at LBJ where it just boiled down to, from an international law perspective, is what Putin's doing legal? internationally no it's right and it's like it's like well no and then that opens up the questions of like well what are the what institutions are like you know doing anything about it and it's just like what what do you do when you have another country like take another country yeah. like that hasn't happened since world war ii and our um director of the law school bobby chesney kind of like fielded those questions but at the end of the day it opens up a lot of other like you know cracks and considerations of how do we enforce international law and what do we do when it's violated.
1: I, I, I have a couple of points on that. So I, I know I'm going to overtime, though. No, no, no. It's your time. Okay. So in terms of Russia's attitude towards international law, the amazing thing about the 1993 Yeltsin Constitution was that it was quite open to international law and the norms and principles of international law. That was actually in the Constitution in one of the first articles chapters of the Constitution. And that was really one of the major changes in terms of understanding and a- attitude towards international law. Again, during the constitutional amendments, he Putin essentially changed that, although he constitutionally wasn't allowed to. But, but that's the law, and uh, <laughs> what you're allowed to or not allowed to it doesn't really matter when you're Vladimir Putin. But he basically, he basically tilted away from all international law. So it's not only just the European Court when I practiced law, you always included a arbitration clause in any contract so that the Western client would not have to go to Russian court. Instead, they would go to London, they would go to various different nice localities in Europe, and they would litigate under foreign law. Putin basically removed that option in the constitutional amendments. Indeed, he basically said that the constitutional court now can overturn commercial arbitration decisions. So again, if you're thinking about Western investors who even want to consider going back to Russia, they'll never do it unless there's a, an ability to have an arbitration clause in their contract. The other thing I w- will say is obviously the invasion of Ukraine has raised all sorts of human rights issues as well. And... Russia, we, we've learned now the real difficulty of bringing Russia and other countries to justice if they engage in, in such atrocities and human rights violations. Russia is not a member of the International Criminal Court. I should add that the United States is not a member of the International Criminal Court. But the idea that somehow some sort of reckoning has to happen at the end of this invasion, and whether it's through international law, whether it's through Ukrainian law. Ukrainian, the Ukrainian prosecutor's office has been, has basically been following all these incidents and gathering evidence about them. Ukraine is unique in that it has a domestic law about crimes of aggression, which was part of the Nuremberg process, but has in fact been incorporated into Ukrainian law. Again, how that actually resolves and resolves itself in, in practice is unknown because clearly they don't have jurisdiction over Russian generals or troops, etc. But there will be trials in Ukraine and there will be an attempt to bring Russia to address the crimes that Russia has committed in Ukraine. And again, going back to my first point, I don't think that there will be any sort of reintegration of Russia into global institutions until somehow procedures are introduced that will at least address the human rights violations in Ukraine by the Russian Federation.
2: Slavic
0: Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world, brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information please visit us online at SlavXradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. The the white and blue one. So Yeah. 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 So nice.
2: Yeah.
0: Yes, I, I have a usual precious skin in Texas as well. We get it. We get, we get, it. It. We get, we get it. it. We understand <laughs>